Welcome to another edition of Running the Race with Rob King. I'm so glad that you're with us today as we continue through the book of Revelation, one verse at a time. Today we come to chapter 5, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, I would have to say this because it highlights how worthy Jesus is. Reminds me of the book of Hebrews that basically goes through describing why Jesus is greater than the temple, greater than the law, greater than Moses, or better than, better than, better than throughout the book of Hebrews. It's so wonderful. Or in the Gospels where Jesus says, one is one that is greater than Solomon is here. One that is greater than Jonah is here. One that is greater than the temple is here. And so in chapter 4, if you remember of Revelation, uh, we were taken to this new scene in heaven. There is this war machine, if you will, in preparation for the impending judgment of the world and Jesus' return. In chapter 4, we saw the throne of God. In chapter 5, we're going to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The focus is going to be on Jesus. This entire scene, we have to understand, is all of creation glorifying Christ before he returns to take back what is rightfully his. He's taking back what is rightfully his by judgment. The first time, Jesus comes as a suffering servant. He comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's cold, humble. And uh, now he's coming as a conquering king. He's no longer on a donkey, but the imagery is that of one on a, a white horse, triumphant, victorious, with judgment, fire in his eyes that see everything, a sword that comes from his mouth that destroys his enemies, destroys his enemies. So as we think about this scene, I want to begin just by setting this up, saying uh, how else... And what else would God do in order to establish the reign of Jesus Christ on the earth? This may not be the way you would think it should be done. I was talking with someone yesterday who, who was really struggling with the idea of a God of judgment. Well, he just created us this way, and so it's really his fault. He, there was a, in this conversation, this person was blaming God for everything. And so we have, we have a real problem, human nature, completely uh, devoid of understanding without God's help. We have a real problem with a God who judges. But how else would he establish the reign of Christ on the earth? Think about it. He sent his son in love. He's exercised endless patience. He's offered us salvation. He sent the prophets. He sent the law. And now he's going to take by judgment what is rightfully his. This is something that human beings really struggle with, and that is the judgment of Almighty God. And what is the judgment? The judgment that Jesus came into the world and was killed. God revealed his light through the law. He revealed his light through Moses. He revealed his light through the prophets. Ultimately, he revealed his own image in the face of his son, and we killed him. And so, just as Jesus said that the son—remember the, remember the um, parable of the vineyard uh, owner? The owner of the vineyard is away, 
and he hires these people to take care of the vineyard. Then he sends a, a servant to check on it, and they beat the servant. They He sends another servant. They beat that servant and kill that servant. Then he sends his son, thinking, well, if I send my son, they'll respect him. But they, instead, they said, well, if we kill the son, we're going to greedily be able to have all the prophets ourselves." and they kill the son. Jesus told that story. And of course, he was talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all of Israel. You've been sent the law, you've been sent the prophets, and now you've been sent the son, and you'll kill him too. And he said in his in this parable that Jesus told, in this story that he was telling, he said, what do you think the owner is going to do? What do you think the owner is going to do when that happens? Well, I, I could ask the same thing. What do you think the Lord Jesus is going to do? What do you think the Father is going to do once you've killed the prophets, once you've disregarded the law, once you've crucified the Son? At some point, there will be judgment, and that's what the second coming is all about. So this scene in chapter 5, in chapter 4, it was all about the throne of God. It was painting this picture. But now there's this scene of this war machine that is getting ready. And Jesus is going to return. I think in many ways, uh, when Jesus said that he came to judge the world, he was really pointing forward to what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 5. If you remember, he said he didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. And you're like, that doesn't seem to make sense. Because everything in Jesus' ministry was loving and kind and generous and compassionate. And he was just a, you know, he wasn't what the people expected. One of the problems that with the Messiah was that he, he wasn't uh, the lion that they expected him to be. They wanted him to overthrow Roman rule and, and <laughs> establish his kingdom with power and worldly might. And the disciples were arguing even over who would sit on his right hand and his left hand. And the Pharisees wanted him to rule. And his, at the time, his unbelieving half-brothers said, well, man, you make yourself known. Make yourself known. But that... That, that time would come, and that time is right now in, 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 in Revelation chapter 5. If you wonder what the owner of the vineyard would do when you kill his slaves and kill his son, then you're about to find out when the son comes back in full judgment and vindication mode. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5, and I'll start in verse 1. It's a long chapter. I think it's like 14 verses, so we're going to go through it. But I'll probably just take bits and pieces at a time and go through it. It's best if you have your Bibles there. Uh, read, you can read this and put your eyes on it. It says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Remember, this is carrying over from chapter 4. There's this throne. Okay. Then there's in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. So, so John saw a book. In those days, it would have been a scroll, dried animal skin, rolled up into a scroll, it was sealed with seven seals. In other words, you'd, you'd, you'd undo one seal, and then you'd unroll it away, and there'd be another seal, and you'd unroll it. There There were seven seals. This was common to have multiple seals, uh, sorry, seals <laughs> over a deed or a contract. So what was in the right hand of him who sat on the throne was what I have heard referred to as the title deed to the universe, the title deed to the earth. In other words, the judgment and the redemption of the earth. It was held in his hand. It's interesting, Ezekiel describes this in chapter 2. 
of Ezekiel. And he said, Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When it and when he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and on the back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. So even from Ezekiel, we see it pointing toward this, and in Revelation, we're going to understand that what's in that, what's in this uh, scroll, is foretelling all of the judgments that's about that are about to take place. Verse two says, "And I saw a strong angel." proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Verse 4, Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Okay, so... In this scene, now, we're not told who this strong angel is. Some would say Gabriel, others Michael. The text doesn't name the angel. The loud voice simply means that, that the entire universe would have heard this declaration going out over the entire universe, who is worthy to open the scroll. No one was able. No one was worthy to open the book or look into it. This means that all of the patriarchs were silent. All of the apostles were silent. Completely silent. In this moment, there was no human being that had ever lived who would be able to open that scroll. There's no person throughout all of human history who was worthy or able to open the scroll. I just want you to imagine the silence of that moment. A loud loud voice goes out over the entire universe and asks, who is worthy? And then silence. And when this was the case, John began to weep because no one was found worthy. By the way, this is the same weeping that Jesus did over Jerusalem, same word is used, when he said, I, I, I'd like to gather you in, uh, but you're not, you're not uh, willing to be gathered in. He's weeping over Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And, and, and when Peter had betrayed the Lord, he wept the same weeping. This, this is a deep, this is a bitter weeping. Some commentators have even said that this weeping of John was representative of all of the weeping throughout all of human history. So if you can imagine all of the lament that has been felt from every generation from Adam and Eve at the death of Abel, the the weeping Israelites in bondage, the weeping of every injustice and every encounter by human beings— perhaps encompassing the sadness of all of creation that groans and longs to see the earth redeemed by Christ. This is interesting to think of all of the sorrow, all of the suffering felt throughout all of human existence, culminating in these tears in heaven shed by the Apostle John. By the way, the only tears ever mentioned in the Scripture that would fall in heaven. And they were premature tears, and they were unnecessary tears at that. But it makes us think of what Paul wrote to the Romans when he said, He said this, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. There is a collective groaning for Christ to appear from all of creation that has been broken and is sorrowful. So when the Apostle John, then he he goes on to write verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. Verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So here the elder told the apostle John to stop weeping. He's going to draw his attention to a strange sight indeed. He, he's from the tribe of Judah, which is a picture of the Old Testament lion that comes to conquer and to reign. By the way, it was this image of the Messiah that would lead the Jews in Jesus' day to mischaracterize the Lord. They were expecting a conquering king, like I said, but instead they encountered a humble, sacrificial lamb. They also reference Jesus here as the root of David, right? John references Jesus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as the root of David. This is a messianic term we also find in the New Testament. Son of David, if you remember a man who's crying out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, right? This was a common phrase of recognition that he's the Messiah, the one that is foretold. So he's called that. Then the elder says that he has overcome, and he's able to open the book and its seals. This is an obvious reference to what Jesus did on the cross as he overcame the grave and death. And of course, he calls us as believers in Christ overcomers as well. So he has overcome. Now, if you can imagine this scene in verse six, he says that he saw a lamb standing. Okay, so here's the scene. We know from from, uh, chapter four and now chapter five, there's this green rainbow, brilliant pavement, pearls, rubies, 24 elders, 20 or four living creatures, right? In the midst of all this, he saw a lamb standing, a lion, yet a lamb. Now, this lamb refers to the sacrificial lamb from the Passover, you remember, it's only mentioned, the, the, the word that's used here for lamb is mentioned only one time in the Old Testament, four times in the New Testament, 31 times in the book of Revelation. And here he is standing, and, and it was as, as if he were slain. In other words, the wounds of his crucifixion were visible, and yet he was alive. And then it goes on to say that he has seven horns, which is an obvious reference to the power and dominion of Jesus. Jesus has absolute power over all things. That's the seven horns. And then he has seven eyes, which denotes perfect understanding of all things. 
This makes reference to also the seven spirits of God, which means, you know, simply the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth, searching for the guilty, unrepentant sinners, searching for those who will be judged. You get the idea here that there's nobody that's going to escape the penetrating gaze of the Holy Spirit of God Almighty. He is going to judge sinners, and no one will be able to hide. And so uh, that's what the, the lamb and the lion, this is what this, this picture of this lamb and this lion are all about. This lamb that is also a lion, seven horns, all these eyes, okay, powerful and all-seeing and all-knowing, walks over and takes the scroll out of the, out of the hand of him who sits on the throne. And this is also a scene that's described in Daniel chapter 7. And it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the scene here is beyond amazing. I think one that words obviously fail to capture. And I think in many ways, the Lord, the Lord God is like us when we're dealing with our children when they're young. When my children were two years old, I, I would stoop down to their level like we do, right? I would speak in words that they could comprehend, put everything in, in ways in which they could understand it. And, and I think as we read the book of Revelation, we need to remember, it would do us well to remember, that we're dealing with an infinite God and an all-knowing God. We're dealing with scenes that are in heaven, far above us, far above our capacity to understand. And yet the Lord has been so gracious in His Word. That, that is very clear, sufficient. Everything we need to understand, everything God wants you to see about heaven, you see in this, in this chapter. It's very clear. At the same time, I think it would, it, it would be impossible for us to imagine really fully what John did see. Someday we will see these things, of course. We don't need to read into it with any symbolism. We don't need to read into the words, but we need to take them at face value. What do we see here? What we see here is everything that we need to see, which is Jesus Christ slain for our sins in all power and all dominion. He's taking the title deed to the universe and he has the ability to open it up. Now we come into verse 8 when he tells us what's going to happen when he takes the book. Remember, this is a real scene happening in a real place. Verse 8. Then when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And he sang a new song. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, 
For you were slain and purchased for God with your own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So here we see the four living creatures, the 24 elders, falling down before the Lamb. So the same reverence, the same worship that they gave to the one that was on the throne, follow this, is the same reverence and worship they give to the Lamb. That means, obviously, that Christ is God. There is a trinity. There is the God the Father. There is Jesus the Son. There is the Holy Spirit. There, they are three in one. This picture of the worship in heaven of Jesus Christ as part of the Trinity really settles any debate. Maybe the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or any other cult that would deny the deity of Christ. Christ here is worshipped clearly as God. Paul wrote this to the Ephesians. He said, God raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every uh, name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This is Jesus, the head of the church. So then there's a mention of harps and bowls. The harps are seen in Scripture as prophecy. And this would be all of the prophecies ever prophesied about the Christ. So the 24 elders are holding harps, which represent all of the prophetic words in Scripture ever given about Christ. Then they're also holding golden bowls filled with incense, which is all of the prayers ever prayed by the people of God. All of these pictures point to this culmination, this crescendo of God's perfect plan, And they have 24 elders. What are they holding? They're holding all of the prophetic words from all the Scripture, all the prayers of all the saints ever prayed. Imagine that. And then it says they sang a new song, which is the song of the redeemed. The people in Scripture who sing a new song are always the ones who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. They're from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, from every part of the earth. All of the redeemed at this point sing worship to the Lamb. And then it mentions that we've been purchased. So this is a picture of a slave being redeemed. So the picture would be one of a slave being purchased at the market and then immediately being set free. Purchased for the point of freedom. Beautiful picture here of all of humanity that's been, basically it's all of humanity that's been redeemed, has been saved by Jesus Christ. Now imagine, just for a moment, imagine how John must have seen this, because he, had, he really only knew at that point of the first century church and all of its struggles. So, and he had just received letters from Jesus, remember, to the seven churches, and he knew of, of churches that some of them had nobody in them that were even redeemed. And now he's seeing this multitude, myriad, millions who are worshiping the land. How, Lamb, how encouraging this must have been. The church isn't going to die, John. The church is going to make it through the first century. It's going to make it all the way to the end. This may be a good opportunity to say for all of those, those uh, naysayers in every generation who say the church is going to die, it would be good to remember that the church belongs to Jesus. 
and Jesus will come back for his church, and then his church is going to reign with him. So way beyond what humans might say or think, Jesus has something to say about it too. So let's go on to verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and their elders, and the number of them was myriad of myriad, right? Myriads of myriad, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So, verse 13, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Verse 14 says, And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So this is the the picture. This is the scene of the throne room of God. It's a war room making preparations for God's judgment of the earth through Jesus Christ. It's a scene filled with worship. Now imagine this. Okay, we've all watched and seen. Have you seen somebody prepare prepare for a fight? I mean, a boxing match on TV. And before they go to fight, you see them kind of. Sometimes they'll have the cameraman in the in the dressing room. What's the guy doing? He's he's talking with his coach and he's jumping around and he's trying to you know get all warmed up. A football team before the big game. They're in the locker room, right? And the coach is giving them the 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 pep talk, right? Do this one. I don't know why this just came to my mind, but do this one for the Gipper. You know, I mean, there's something that has to be beyond inspirational to send you out on that field so that you will come back with a victory, secure the victory. You need to be motivated for that. But here is a scene before the second coming of Jesus Christ. There is no shadow boxing. There is no pep talk. There's no preparation in that way. The scene, the scene has no doubt of what's going to be accomplished. The end is already decided. This is a scene of eminent victory. This is one on the throne, and then a, then a lamb who was slain who takes the scroll, and then people just worship and worship and worship. Why? Because the outcome is secure. He's not going to lose. We should be reminded today. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the son of David. He is the lamb that has been sacrificed for our sins. He's the lion that reigns. Jesus is the one who bears the wounds that we inflicted upon him because of our sin. And yet he reigns supreme as the ultimate victor. And the one who's able to judge the living and the dead, Jesus is the one who receives all the glory and praise from the 24 elders and all the created beings and all of those in heaven for all of eternity, the myriad upon myriads of the thousands upon thousands, and all of those who know him will worship him eternally. He is the only one worthy. Jesus, we thank you today that you're in heaven. Thank you that in heaven all of our tears will be dried. All of our sorrow will be over. 
we will experience a weight of glory we can't comprehend that doesn't compare to our current struggles. Father, we praise you today. Jesus, we praise you as the Lamb who was slain, the Lion who reigns. Thank you, Father, for, uh, Lord, those of us who know you, we're going to reign with you forever and ever. Lord, I pray that those who are listening today who don't know you, that they would repent of their sins, Father, that you'd give them the grace to repent, and they would mourn and grieve over their sinfulness, that they would beg you to save them so that they might join with all of creation to worship you forever and ever. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.